the Silver Voices Project, which allowed for digitization and sharing of this archival audio, was made possible by a grant from the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services, grant number MA 30190681198119. Machine. Uh, it's possible that seven would be better here. Is it a, a Wallenzak or? Paul knows about it. He's quite a genius mm -hmm. about these things. I thought Marmalade and Jack ought to be with us. Oh, yes. Isn't that nice? Would you comment about those stills, please, in the picture? Well, I have to admit, I, I don't recall making the pictures, but that's no wonder. Because you see, we made, on an average, of two pictures a week. Uh, we spent, uh, generally, the first three days in the studio doing the interiors, and the next three days in Fort Lee, or someplace in New Jersey. And, of course, if it rained, very often as many as three or four pictures would pile up. Uh, that is, as far as the interiors were concerned, until such a time as we could go out and finish them uh, in the open. No, I don't uh, recall this picture. I do, pardon me. Pardon me, I think, oh yes, this is called The Test. The Test. This is an early biograph, and this, you say, is Arthur Johnson and Charles Craig? That's right. Yes. And uh, Arthur Johnson, as you know, was the great hero of the biograph company. He was one of seven sons uh, of a minister. The other six sons followed in their father's footsteps and became ministers, but uh, <laughs> that darling Arthur Johnson was considered the black sheep because he had disgraced the entire family, not alone by going on the stage, but actually appearing in the galloping tintypes, <laughs> as we were known then. And uh, that looks like uh, Dorothy Bernard to me. My gracious, you know, any time that person was supposed to have money, they always had palms. In the, <laughs> do you notice that? Yes, and I think I noticed the same palm stand in both of these stills. Well, I'm, I'm sure you, you, yes, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, the uh, studio, of course you've heard about the studio, was a uh, ballroom originally in this old mansion on 14th Street. And uh, it was... Uh, circular and overhead were these blue lights cooper hewitts and banks of them and uh, sometimes they would break and the uh, oh the quicksilver what is that called um, mercury the mercury would run out and i would i was still a little girl enough to gather it up and play with it and you know it would it would break up into particles, and then it would all run together. And if you put a gold ring or anything in it, it be immediately became silver. And uh, it was ghastly. Everybody looked as though they'd been dead, well, for some time. It was very unattractive. Lips were purple. And uh, it took me some time to get accustomed to it. It was depressing. 
They had no Banks, no Cooper Hewitts until later on. And uh, they only had two dressing rooms, one for the men, one for the women. But it sufficed. Our dressing room, or rather our wardrobe, was downstairs. And I, being the littlest of the company, always had to be pinned into these big dresses. Of course, they didn't want to change them. We had a wardrobe mistress. But if they made them to fit me, they wouldn't fit Florence Lawrence or Marion Leonard or any of the other uh, women in the company. So I had to always keep my back turned away from the camera in order that the safety pins would not photograph. Now let's see what other ones are here. Here's one from the same film, and I believe that's uh, that really quirk. Yes, and I think I recall now my memory is refreshed and ha refreshed. Oh, how do I say that? Right. Refreshed? <laughs> refreshed. Uh, I think I tried to make him jealous by having him think that I'd had a, a, a male visitor. So I smoked this large black cigar and blew the, the smoke all over the furniture and the drapes. And everybody, including Mr. Griffith, was very concerned uh, since I didn't smoke then and, as a matter of fact, still do not and especially cigars and pipes, that I was going to be deathly sick. Well, it took most of the afternoon to get the scenes, and to everybody's amazement, and to my great relief, I wasn't sick at all. <laughs> but uh, my first and last encounter with a cigar. Was there some kind of a tar-like secretion that was supposed to show on the chairs and the drapes no. as a result of the smoking? No, I don't think so. I think it was just that... Uh, it was the, uh, the the smoke, yes. the smell of the smoke. Now, here's a theory here in which you wear a black wig. Oh, yes. Well, again, we find uh, Billy Quirk and uh, James Kirkwood and I in a black wig. I'm evidently the maid in the house. Mr. Kirkwood's holding up some uh, long gentleman's unmentionables. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, Jimmy is very much upset about the whole thing. And another scene here in the parlor and the lace curtains, which takes me back to my own childhood, and the overstuffed furniture. It's amazing what they were able to do in a little space like that ballroom. And isn't it too bad that it wasn't uh, when they tore down the mansion that that wasn't kept? I'm, I'm sorry about that. I wish I'd had the foresight to do something about it. If not anything else, one or two of the marvelous mantelpieces in the uh, mansion. Beautiful circular staircase. And we used to show our dailies, that is our, the uh, work that of the day before, up in one of the master bedrooms that was uh, all cleared out. And I recall so distinctly the first time Lionel Barrymore saw himself on the screen. We were doing uh, Friends. And uh, he and Walsall were a couple of gamblers, and I was a lady of the evening. I'm sure my mother never saw that picture and never knew anything about it. Of course, she never would have permitted me. But I wasn't too naughty. It was only slightly suggested okay. that I was a naughty girl because I was living over a saloon. That was the extent of my naughtiness. And uh, Barrymore turned to me and uh, poked me with his index finger 
And he said, little girl, uh, tell me, am I really that fat? I thought, well, if I pretend that I didn't hear him, uh, maybe he won't ask it again. But he said, little girl, tell me the truth. Am I really that fat? And I said, I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Barrymore, but you are. He said, that doesn't. No more beer for me. And he immediately took off 20 pounds. Now, what is the other series? This is one, a biograph um, film from 1913. I believe your brother Jack appears in there. Could you tell us what sort of parts he used to play with biographs? Well, the poor little darling, you know, he, being small and slender, had to double for the girls. If ever anyone's supposed to fall off a balcony or off a horse, it was Johnny who did it. And he didn't get the stunt money, you know, that they get today. They get, I believe, $150, $200 a stunt. Jack got $5 a day. Well, in this picture, I see him, and he's very handsome. He's about, I don't know what age he'd be there, certainly in his early teens. And he's wearing a page un uh, uniform. And I think that young and beautiful lady in the background with her profile turned to us and pearls in her hair is Mabel Normand. She hadn't uh, come into her great prominence at that time. I'm very glad to say I discovered her. Well, she was seated by the camera, and I can see her as though it were yesterday. She had on a charming little sailor hat, and although she were, there were, couldn't have been more than, I don't know, 17, 18, she wore a spotted veil. And I thought she was one of the loveliest things I'd ever seen. So I went over to Mr. Griffith, and I said, did you see that pretty girl the side of the camera? He said, no. Well, I said, walk over there and take a look at her. I said, I think she has the sweetest little face. So uh, that afternoon, she played an extra and became a member of the biograph. And of course, Max Sennett discovered her, and she did all of the Sennett comedies with him, with the exception of one, and they had a quarrel. And she refused to appear in this picture. It was something about a fish. Do you one know? by a fish. <laughs> one by a fish. <laughs> they nearly lost me by a fish. I tell you, if you play in the hot California sun for three days with the same fish, you never wanted to look at one again. But everybody in the company, all, I mean, that is all of the girls, were asked to play this, this part, Mabel's, and they all refused. It was a split reel, and... Uh, we felt ourselves above that, the dramatic actresses. So I felt so sorry for Max Sennett that I said, oh, all right, I'll do it. So that was the, uh, that was the story of the, of the fish. You anticipate my next question, Miss Pickford. I was just about to ask you if you were ever directed by anyone except Mr. Griffith at my address. No. There was just one film you say was, uh, which uh, Max Sennett directed? That was the only one. Were you ever directed by, uh, was his name Paul Powell? Or, um, his name was Powell, but it wasn't Paul. No, it wasn't Paul. It was the other Powell. I'll think of a question. 
Yes, I often think, you know, in going back over the biograph days, uh, I try to remember his name. Paul Lucas. No, that wasn't Paul Lucas. Wilfred Lucas. Wilfred Lucas. He married uh, Beth... Uh, Frank Powell. Frank Powell, that's it. No, I think I left the company before he started directing. And then Christy Cabany, I believe, directed later. Yeah. But I was, uh, no, it was only that once. The one you were directed by Max Bennett. Otherwise, it was always... Always, even the split reels, Mr. Griffith yeah. directed. I wish you'd comment about this review of a December 1911 film of yours called Love Heat, Not the Showers. It says there's one instance when little Mary stood close to the camera and we saw a very good portrait of this very popular player. Now, this was a, nearly a year previous to the close-up that you've mentioned in France. Well, I'm sure that that was an accident. I'm quite sure, because the day that Mr. Griffith decided to make a close-up, I think I've told you before that the camera was always stationary and was on a platform and could be raised and lowered by a steel shaft that had teeth in it. But it was, n it was never done at that time. And uh, Mr. Griffith said to uh, Billy Bitzer, his cameraman, he said, come on, Bitzer, let's have fun and move the camera up close to Pickford. You know, he always called his uh, leading uh, women, in fact, everybody, by their last name. It was a, <laughs> just one of his little eccentricities. He didn't mean any offense, of course. And I was very excited about the idea. And I said, Mr. Griffiths, don't you think that I should put on a fresh makeup? And he said, yes, I think that would be a good idea. And then the following day, when we saw the rushes, the, the uh, exposed film of the day before, he called out in the dark and he said, Pickford, what do you think of that? I said, well, Mr. Griffith, I believe you'll do more of that. But I do think I made a mistake in putting on so much makeup around my eyes and such a, he a heavy lipstick. He said, yes, you'll have to tone that down the next time. It's amazing, and looking at these pictures, how the flood of memory comes back and how touching it all is. Miss Pickford, there was a biograph film that you made called A Beast at Bay, in which, according to the review, you drove a car lickety-split down a hill. Do you remember that? I certainly do. <laughs> and there was a, a train keeping up with me. Oh. And I drove 50 miles an hour, which would be equivalent to 150 today. And my poor mother standing on the roadside praying out loud. I mean, she, she was so terrified. And, of course, I wasn't very good uh, at driving at that time. And it was an old car, as I recall and uh, open, you know, it yeah. had no top. And uh, that was made out here uh, in California. And it was right alongside the uh, railroad track. And the, the I was racing the engine. I think, I believe, that, as I recall it, I won out. I'm, I'm sure you did. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Griffith had anything to do with it, I did. <laughs> Now, let's see, let's skip ahead to the period when you were with famous players, and we'd like to know if Mr. Porter photographed the films of yours which he directed, acting as both cameraman and director. Well, he d directed me, and as I recall it, and uh, 
I don't know whether he did the good little devil or not. He may have. That was my first picture and one of the worst I ever made. Really? You see, famous players were doing nothing but famous plays. And famous players. And um, the ambitious uh, one that I used to be would never have accepted the idea of being put in class B. I didn't find that out until years later. The class A were people like um, Minnie Madden Fisk, Lily Langtry, um, James O'Neill, Sarah Bernhardt, and I was just a, a youngster, and, uh, but I, I had grown up ideas. And I was sold along with the play of The Good Little Devil, uh, together with the rest of the company, and we did the picture in the after, in the daytime, from morning until six. Went home and got a quick dinner, and then went on to the theater. But Mr. Belasco insisted that all of the dialogue be read, and it was it was deadly. The result was just terrible. <laughs> and uh, before it was over, uh, Mr. Daniel Froman, Charles Froman's brother, who was president of the uh, famous players at that time, sent for me, and I went up to his office, and he signed me to 14 weeks. That was all during the summer. And I was supposed to go back and do the road show in September. And did you know that um, Claire Booth Luce, our distinguished ambassador, was my understudy? No, I didn't know that. Well, I didn't until many years after, and she told me herself. And her mother said, well, I think Mary is much too healthy and you'll never have the opportunity of playing that role and I think we'd better resign, which they did do. And uh, the, the next uh, fall, I was taken ill and the doctor would not uh, allow me to go on the road. So my understudy actually did play the blind uh, Juliet in Good Little Devil. So then I went on with uh, famous players and uh, it's possible that Porter did would I, uh, direct me in The Good Little Devil. I wonder if you discuss the two versions of Test of the Storm Country and express your reasons for preferring the first version. Well, now let me see. Porter directed me in that, you know, and also in uh, Hearts Adrift, mm -hmm. which came before Test. And I absolutely put my foot down and said I would not do Tess. He asked me to come down to the studio. Why they put up with me in my youth, I don't know. Or perhaps <laughs> even in my old age, I don't know. <laughs> I said, no, Mr. Port, I won't do it. He said, well, what's your idea? Well, I said, I play a barefooted girl in, in Hearts Adrift. And I want to dress up now. I don't want to play another ragged uh, uh, urchin. He said, this is a great story. I said, I don't care how great it is. I don't want to do it. I said, I'm tired of these, uh, these uh, this kind of a, a role. He said, will you do me a favor? Take it home and read it. And if you feel the same way tomorrow morning, then I will agree with you. I went home and I couldn't put the book down. In fact, I couldn't wait until the next morning. I called him at the hotel and I said, Mr. Porter, you're so right. And I was so wrong. I just loved Tess. And, uh, of course, it was one of my great successes. 
And uh, I might add that it moved me out of class B into class A. Because Mr. Zucker later told me that, of course, we didn't see at that time. We couldn't see our rushes. Yes. I didn't see the picture full until I got back to New York. But he told me that Tess of the Storm Country came along at a time when he was bankrupt. He had um, put up his own life insurance. He had uh, pawned his wife's diamond necklace. But never once did he ever tell anybody in the company that he couldn't pay their salaries. That's the kind of a man Adolf Zucker is, and why he deserved the great success, and why he is still one of the leading figures of our industry. You seem to have a warm spot in your heart for the first version of Tess, though, rather than for the second. Well, I don't know. It seemed to me that the first Tess was more spontaneous. Of course, she was, I don't know, she was more tested to me than the second. Maybe it was because I had lived the role twice. And we had become more precocious. There wasn't uh, the, the same enthusiasm. Well, I'll tell you the difference. For instance, seven years, the entire cost of the original test was $10,000. That included Mr. Porter's fare out here, that of his secretary and her husband, my mother and myself, and my salary, the entire cost. Seven years later, I paid famous players, or rather at that time, Paramount, because they had combined, you know, Lasky and famous players, and became Paramount. I. I don't wish to sound uh, mercenary, but it's indicative of what happened to the industry in seven short years. The, the produc production that cost $10,000 for everything, story rights included, I paid Paramount $50,000. Isn't that amazing? I wonder if you'd tell us a little about Emmett Williams, one of your early cameramen. I'm the reason I mention this is that I have a notice here dated May 1916 in which it says Emmett Williams is dead and that he was known in the profession as a cameraman who worked with Mary Pickford. Miss Pickford thought so much of his work that she would have no other photographer make her pictures. Oh, he was a charming young person. He was very young. He had sort of reddish gold hair. I can see him before me now. And uh, he had a great future. But he died of an ulcerated tooth. It, uh, it went to his brain, and he died, and, and we all felt terribly about it. Do you remember, uh, Miss Pickford, which of, of your films he might have photographed that they have been, uh, oh, the eagle's mate and such a little queen behind the scenes, some of those along in there? Yes, I would say he made all of them. Yes. Uh, Mr. Snell and Yes. Banch on the Cricket. Dawn of the Tomorrow. Yes. I think he died before Esmeralda. Yes. And Little Pal, you know, I did that. That was the other, only other picture I did twice. Uh, little Pal was burned in the fire in 1920. Mm -hmm. And uh, was it 20? No, it must have been no, earlier. No, it was earlier. I believe no. it was around 1916. That's right. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how I felt when I saw the studio 
at just one big bonfire and knowing that there were my films in the safe hanging on the wall. Uh, Dawn, of a uh, Dawn of a Tomorrow was destroyed and Little Pal and uh, I just missed the fire by about 15 minutes. I had been in the studio and uh, I had watched some scenes being made and I had gone into my dressing room and taken off a pearl pin that I had on. And uh, I got in the car and uh, I said to my mother, I want to go back and get that pin. And mother said, oh, don't bother about it. And we were at the Knickerbocker Hotel having dinner. Jim Kirkwood and uh, Mr. Uh, Zucker and his son Eugene had been with us and they, they had gone down somewhere on Long Island to see a prize fight. And Mother and Kirkwood and I remained on the balcony and I heard the fire reels go down Broadway. And I said, Mother, the studio's on fire. Mother said, now, that Irish imagination of you, yours carries you too far at times. <laughs> I said, Mother, I know that the studio's on fire. I just know it. And they kept going like mad down Broadway. And I said, Jim, I wish you'd get up and find out. He came back, he said, yes, the studio's on fire. And he said, I've got to get Mr. Zucker. So he took a taxi cab and tried to find him, and he finally did. And Mother and I were standing outside watching this fire when he, when he came. It was 21st Street, 20, 26th Street. And I was crying, and he said, Sweetheart, honey, this is always his title for me. He said, don't cry. He said, be grateful to the Lord that none of us are in that fire. And I didn't tell him how nearly I was in it. And it was a, a loft, you know, and it had a big elevator, only one elevator. And uh, we thought that the cutter was caught in the fire, as it was only we lost a poor little dog, studio dog. But uh, it, Mr. Mr. Zucker was very brave and said to Jim Kirkwood of the Astor Hotel that night, he said, Jim, I promised you a raise. It starts on next Monday. And Jim said, no, I don't want it. He said, you've got to take it. But that's the kind of a man Zucker was. I wonder if you'd comment a little about Madame Butterfly, Miss Pickford. Thank you. We have a print of this in the Eastman House collection. And I think that Mickey Nealon played after this season. Yes, he did. And I went to Mr. Zucker, and I knew that Mickey was a, a potentially a great director. And I asked if he would, him if he would engage him. I said, you, he can be an actor, and he can also be, be the director, and he's only getting $150 a week, and you'll be saving money. And he said, sweetheart, honey, he said, let somebody else discover him, and we'll pay him double. <laughs> he said, it'll be cheaper in the long run. So then when I came west, my brother Jack said to me, grab Mickey Nealon. He had just done the bottled imp. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Do you have that? With no, no, we don't. I wish we did. Sesha Hayakawa. Mm -hmm. So Mickey did my first picture on the, no, not my first picture on the coast, because I did two with Cecil DeMille, The Romance of the Redwoods, and, and The Little American. And then Mickey made Rebecca and The Little Princess and Amarilli of Clothesline Alley, and let's see what else, Melissa and Stella Maris. He made five, all in a row. 
Uh, I wonder if you'd comment on this um, review of Esmeralda, which I think is very interesting because it indicates how audiences in sophisticated New York, even in the heat of the summer of 1915, would stand in line and stand up once they got inside the theater, standing room only. Uh, this is a review of Esmeralda. And it says, uh, Little Mary packs the aisles and throws the announcer, who must have been outside the theater, into Horse Despair, a most remarkable performance on a hot summer's night. And then it says, Pickford pictures differ from all others in one important way, this having to deal with a matter of script treatment, a bit of foresight that aims to give photo fans every bit of pleasure they may derive from the treasured features and looks of its diminutive favorite. Not even the least important scene may be omitted. Little Mary must enter a door, just close it from the inside, mount the stairs, and repeat the performance with her access to her room. And did Mr. Kirkwood fail to allow her to pause on the stairs, or to show her in at least one close-up every hundred feet, <laughs> every fondly critical standee would be able to tell at once where her director had made his vital error. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's nice. You know, I, I I never read that. In fact, you know much more about my career than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about working with uh, Jimmy Kirkwood, will you? Well, he, he's a, a charming individual, a wonderful sense of humor, was a very close friend of my brother Jack. Although old enough to be my brother's father, they played like youngsters together, and the mother was very fond of him. He was always welcome at our house for dinner. Anytime he saw fit to drop in, he was not critical of me in our working together. And that's a strange thing. You know that I freeze up. Uh, if I think someone is critical of me, I, uh, I just, I can't laugh or cry. Uh, I'm devastated. I lost 18 pounds in three months when I was unhappy with the imp. To such an extent, the doctors thought I was tubercular and advised mother taking me back to the States. And I broke the contract. I was able to break it because when I signed it, I wasn't of age. And uh, the court called me an infant. And. Uh, I only had three months to go, but I felt if I had to work three days more with that company that I'd die. And Carl Lemley wrote me the most beautiful letter. It was a uh, special delivery letter, and he said how sorry he was to hear this thing. And anyone who'd made my life misery, a misery to me, they'd only got my side of the story. Of course, I didn't tell him, neither did Mother. Evidently, some friend of mine in the in the company had had told him, and he said that he would dismiss any of them. But naturally, I didn't want anyone to lose their job, and so I went with Majestic. And that was an unhappy experience. We went to Chicago. The weather was so cold there, and the studio was impossible. And I started the film and never finished it. That later became Triangle. You know. Um, Inns, Griffith, and Senate. And then I went back to my beloved biograph, and oh, was I happy <laughs> when I stood in front of that camel with the beloved D.W. Griffith in back of it, and Billy Bitzer, and all my friends. It was just like heaven. 
Tell us about leaving Biograph for the second time. Well, I decided there was no future for me or any trained actress in pictures. Uh, for the very real reason that my dear friend May Marsh had never been in the theater, had never had any picture experience, and uh, she was awarded the plum picture called The Sands of Dee. It's uh, based on a poem by Kingsley. And he kept, uh, Mr. Griffiths, during the whole time out here, kept dangling this plum in front of our eyes. Uh, that was Dorothy Bernard, and Mabel Norman, uh, Blanche Sweet, and myself. And May joined the company. The most diffident little sweet self-effacing personality. It wasn't jealousy or envy on my part. It was just cold reasoning. And when we all refused to do the man's genesis, I think it was called, and we had to wear a grass skirt. Well, it is so modest. I'm sure that Queen Elizabeth of England or any queen could wear it in great <laughs> dignity. <laughs> and not be at all embarrassed when I think of the bikinis I've seen on the Riviera. Uh, but I didn't want to have bare feet and bare legs. I hate to admit this, but as a child, they put on cotton stockings on me to go bathing, and uh, sneakers, and the most awful little cotton dresses with sailor collars. And all of the children and women, that's all the girls and the women, dressed like that, so you can understand why I was outraged to put on a, a, a grass skirt. Of course, it had a top, naturally. But when I refused, Dorothy, Bernard, Blanche Sweet, Mabel Norman, they all said, well, if Mary won't do it, we won't do it. Mr. Griffith got on his high horse and galloped all over the place and said in a, in a, a very loud, sonorous voice, very well, young ladies. If you will not cooperate with me, I will not cooperate with you. And Miss Marsh is now going to play the Sands of Dee. And she did. And furthermore, she did it beautifully. We all came out of the dark room, the projection room, and really heartily congratulated her. But I began to think it over and talk it over with my mother, and I said, if an inexperienced girl can come in and do that, then a trained actress is wasting her time. I'm going back to the theater. And I told Mr. Griffith that I was going. And he said, don't be silly. He said, uh, you know, you've disgraced yourself. No self-respecting Broadway producer would have anybody who has been in pictures, motion pictures. I said, I'm going with, with David Velasco. And he, he, he thought that was very funny. Well, when I was, went to New York, I still had this in mind. And I called up Mr. Dean, uh, William Dean, David Belasco's manager, because I wanted Mr. Belasco to see Lena and the Geese, the picture that I wrote and appeared in. It was running at the uh, old Herald Square Theater. The biograph used to show only in two places a week, for one day each. That was the Crystal Palace on 14th Street, and owned by Mr. Zucker, by the way. And um, the other was the Herald Square Theater. So I thought if he saw this picture, 
course, in the meantime, I had grown up because when I left the Warrens of Virginia, I was still a child, my curls down my back. So Mr. Dean said, where in the world have you been Betty? Well, Betty was my name in the Warrens of Virginia. I was Betty Warren, written by William DeMille and uh, a very distinguished cast of Broadway players. And I was afraid to tell him. I said, oh, well, I said, I've, you know, I've been to California. I didn't tell him any fibs, but I sort of evaded it. And uh, he said, well, uh, what are you doing? I said, why, nothing. He said, uh, speaking of Mr. Belasco, he said, the governor uh, has been looking all over for you. Where have you been hiding? Then I confessed that I had been in pictures. Well, he said, how long will it take you to get down here? Oh, I said, I'll take the subway, and I'll be down within 20 minutes. So I got down there. But on the phone, he said, Betty, do you still have your long curls? And I said, yes, sir. Well, he said, hurry up and come on down. So when I got there, I was wearing high heels. He said, kick those off. And he said, take the pins out of your hair. And I said, I want you to hide behind that piece of scenery over there. So and he said, don't make a sound. And the stage, of course, was empty. The pilot light was there. It was all very eerie and very wonderful. If you've ever been in the theater, there's nothing like it, you know. And I heard him, the, the governor, saying, but he said, you know, Dean, you, you shouldn't have uh, disturbed me. I was working on the first act, and, and time is short. And he said, I know, governor, but he said, I, this is something that you want very much, he said, and, and I found it. And... He said, it's a surprise. He said, well, what is a surprise? He said, well, you look around that piece of scenery there. And he said, you'll find it for yourself. So he looked in and he said, oh, no, it isn't true. Is that Betty? And I said, yes, sir. And he reached in and took my hand and pulled me out and tears came in his eyes. He said, why, my own little Betty. He said, where have you been hiding? He said, we've looked everywhere for you. He I said, well, sir, I said, I've... Uh, and Dean said, she's been a naughty little girl, Governor. He said, a very, very naughty little girl. He said, what have you been up to? What did you do? Well, I said, you see, sir, I've been in moving pictures. He said, oh, no, not that. Well, I said, I've given them up for good. I said, I don't want to ever go back. He said, well, that's better. He said, I've got big ideas for you. He said, are you under contract? I said, no, sir. He said, well, would you be available? He said, to do a wonderful part. It was by Rostam, you know, the wife and son. And, and it was called, as I've said before, the good little devil. And it was for the role of the blind Juliet. And he said, would you be able to start Monday morning, 10 o'clock rehearsals? I said, yes, sir. He said, then it's a bargain. And he said, uh, you talk business. To, uh, Mr. Dean. I said, no, Mother always does that. And he said, uh, William, get uh, get Betty the, uh, the the part, the role. So he went away and uh, came back. And it was covered, I can see it now, covered with blue paper. And quite voluminous. It was quite a large part. It was uh, co-starring. And I thought, well, the first thing I must do is to go down to the biograph. And, oh, I had a lump in my throat all the way down in the subway from 44th Street to 14th. And I walked in to the studio, and Mr. Griffith was rehearsing. 
And I very meekly said, Mr. Griffith, he said, don't interrupt. You know that that's a rule here, that nobody's to interrupt me when I'm rehearsing. Well, I said, it's important, Mr. Griffith. He said, nothing so important as this rehearsal. And I started to go, and he said, just a moment, because I had tears in my eyes. He said, what's wrong with you? He said, why do you bedevil me like this? I said, I'm not, Mr. Griffith. I'm just trying to tell you goodbye. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. He said, you're leaving where? I said, here. Oh, he said, now, really, he said, this is a hot day, and I'm very tired. I said, no, it's the truth, Mr. Griffith. I said, here's the, here's the role. I'm going with Mr. Belasco, and uh, I start rehearsals Monday morning at 10, with your permission. And he looked at me, and then tears came in his eyes, and he said, rehearsal dismissed. And he said, you know, I'm going to miss you terribly. But he said, that's where you belong anyhow. He said, you belong in the theater. You grew up in the theater from the time you were five years of age. And I'm very pleased and very proud. And if there's anything in the world I can do to help, please let me know. He said, uh, well, today is Thursday. We still have Friday and Saturday. He said, let's make a last picture together. And I said, I'd be delighted. And the last picture was the New York hat. Did you have any um, qualms about your ability to go back onto the stage and picture? Do you tell us a little about that, your feelings? I have never been sanguine in my life before an audience, or before a camera, or before a microphone. Never. And naturally, being away for three years from the theater, I was frightened to death, and, you know, I was born in Canada, and at that time had rather a harsh R, and I had to say garden several times, and we had, oh, a stickler of a dialogue director, and he'd stop me and have me repeat it five, six times, and there were fine actors like uh, Ernest Lawford, an Englishman, whose diction uh, was perfection. And uh, that worried me. Not that I'm ashamed of my Canadian accent. I'm not, only that it is softer. Garden, garden is uh, harsh. And uh, garden, and I had to save my little gold scissors. And you know that I, every time I'd say, I was so afraid I, I w couldn't say scissors. And it's true, well, I think all actors will tell you that there's one line in every play that terrifies a person. And I was frightened to death of the opening night in New York. And I recall so vividly that the ca the, uh, Mr. Mr. Belasco didn't have music. They had a big stick, and I think th that they used it in the time of Shakespeare. Uh, three times they hit the stage with a stick. And then a little tinkly bell tinkled three times. And the, the curtain slowly rose. And I had to come on as this blind Juliet and open the act. And I thought, wouldn't it be awful if I would open my mouth and no sound would come out? And I was longing to say, me, 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 
The scene was still there, but there was a electrician putting a scrim over a light. And I was embarrassed to say it before him. And all I could do was to stand there and say my prayers. And I came on the middle of the stage, and to my great delight, delight out came my voice. It didn't sound nervous. And I'm grateful to say that uh, well, his name was Acton Davies, I think. And all actors, the critic, all actors in New York were in terror of him because he was ruthless. And he said, if my performance and my diction had been learned in moving pictures, it would seem uh, advisable to send some of the Broadway actors to the biograph to, to learn how to speak properly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the credit went to the very severe gentleman who made me say garden probably, I don't know, a hundred times over and over. We've now sketched through a good many of your early famous players' films, and uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the art craft period, and would you tell us about uh, the poor little rich girl? There's a, a fight scene in that that intrigues me greatly. Well, of course, we, we took the spirit of the poor little rich girl rather than the letter, and uh, the very distinguished French director Maurice Tourneur uh, who took life seriously and thought children should behave themselves, couldn't see eye to eye with Frances Marion, my great friend, and oh, nor w w with me. Uh, we wanted this mud fight. Uh, Gwendolyn goes on a rampage because she's been forced. I think the whole thing began when this nasty little girl said, uh, my mother says, your mother has a bee in her bonnet. And I said, that's not true, it's a bird. And uh, she pinches herself and screams, Gwendolyn pinched me. Of course, I didn't. But I get even with her. It's a tea party where all of the ladies and the children are there. So I take a large raspberry tie. And as she's going to sit down, I put it carefully under her. And of course she screams, and my mother's annoyed, and her mother's annoyed, and my mother says, you go upstairs, Gwendolyn, and get your best party dress, and uh, give it to your guest. So with that, I tear upstairs, lock the door, throw out all of my clothes, shoes, hats, fur coat, and not alone that, but kick off my shoes that I'm wearing and take off my dress, and I'm standing there in my fairest waist, panties and underskirt. When I open the door and the governess uh, is there and the, the little girl that has the raspberry uh, jam all over and in the meantime all these little hoodlum youngsters of course they think that these beautiful clothes are sent from heaven and they're all on roller skates and they grab up these things and fly away with them with the result that my mother says all right if that's what you do with your beautiful clothes, from now on you're going to dress as a little boy. And uh, to get even with that, I go down into the conservatory and they're cleaning out the big uh, lily pond. Of course, we're very, very rich people, supposedly. And the gardener's son is there and he doesn't like me and I don't like him and the fight, the fight starts. Excuse me, Miss Pickford, the first thing you say is, my name's Gwendolyn and I'm a boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't remember that. 
Well, my heart was broken, you see, when I, when, I, when they made me put those things on until I looked at myself in the glass. And I thought, well, that's not too bad after all. That might be, there might be possibilities in this. And with that, I go down and start the fight. And Turnier said, oh, no, no. He said, this is terrible. He said, I, I won't have anything to do with it. He said, after all, he said, I've had a dignified career. He said, I don't, I don't approve of the naughtiness of the American children. He said, the French children are not permitted to behave like that. But I said, I'm an American child in this picture. I'm not French. He said, I'll have nothing to do with it. So Frances Marion, who was very beautiful and still is, turned her charms on. No, he wouldn't do it. So I said, well, please, Mr. Turnier, not even to make me happy. And if you don't like it, when you see it on the screen, then cut it out. But please take it. So he did, and it remained in the picture. And it's a very wonderful scene, too. I wonder if you'd comment a little about making uh, The Little American. Uh, did you recall, for instance, that Ramon Navarro plays an extra, one of the soldiers in it? No, I don't remember that. Of course, uh, there were a great many extras, and it was a very difficult picture to make. The sinking of the uh, Lusitania. And we were in the cold water, not alone in the studio, but we went down the bay of uh, San Pedro at night. And I don't swim. And I was out on a raft, and oh, it was cold. And uh, a lot of people were hurt sliding down the outside of the boat, you know. And Jack Holt was in it, Raymond Hatton. Oh, a great many names that probably I don't recall. Uh, tell us a little about Stella Maris, please, and especially uh, Mr. Zucco's reaction to it. Well, I was going down to uh, uh, Del Mar. That's about, uh, oh, I guess 125, 135 miles south of um, Los Angeles. It's toward San Diego. We didn't have good roads in those days, so we didn't use a motor car, only rarely. And uh, I uh, bought a book called Stella Maris at the, at, the, at the station and read it on the way down and I was fascinated. But I loved the character of this little cockney girl called Unity Blake. Stella Maris was an interesting uh, figure, but to me sort of, I don't know, sort of wishy-washy compared to, huh, you wouldn't say that, but <laughs> I think by comparison she was. She was negative compared to Unity who was this poor little miserable orphan and so ugly but had this wonderful sense of humor didn't feel a bit sorry for herself and has had such a terrible life and then this woman who, who takes her wants her to be uh, well a slavey and uh, she's a dipsomaniac and unity goes out to shop and puts the basket down to look in a window and these boys come along and steal the basket and she has to go home and confess that the basket has been stolen and uh, this woman gives her a beating with a hot poker with the result that Unity Blake is taken to the hospital. Adolf Zucker arrived in California while I was in the, the ward all bandaged up, one eye bandaged up and one arm bandaged up in this funny little old-fashioned flannel nightgown on, and I got out of the bed and went over and read him. And his face was a study. He said, what is this, sweetheart, honey? Who are you and what are you doing? 
I said, well, Mr. Zucker, I said, you see, I'm playing this little character called Yundi Blake. He said, you look awful. Well, I said, I'm supposed to look awful. Well, he said, this is, going, this is going to be terrible. He said, wait till the exhibitors see this. But I said, I play another girl in it. Uh, you know, I, a rich girl with curls. But he said, why? Why are you doing this? Well, I said, you're going to like it when you see it on the screen. I said, besides, she dies. He said, she does? He said, when is she going to die? I said, I die next week. He said, you can't die too soon for me. He said, that is Unity Blake, of course. He said, I hope she can't you make her die a little quicker. I said, oh, no, no. I said, no, she's got to die uh, next week. And uh, But he was pleased with the result, and it was, I think, one of my most successful pictures. A very fine film, yes. I'm going to skip back a little and ask you something about Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Did you discuss the making of that? I love that circus season. Oh, I loved Rebecca. I love the place where she knows she wants to sell the soap because it was part of my own life. I remember collecting uh, covers of a cigarette, uh, some cigarette. I should be able to remember the name. I, I think it was Sweet Capel. And uh, why? Uh, I, I'm sure my mother didn't know what I was doing. I'd pick them up out of the gutter. I'd pick them up any place to get my aunt a clock, a brass clock. Well, you know, she wanted to get a... Uh, a lamp, didn't she? Yeah, Standing yeah, lamp. Uh, well, that's that flying scene. I had a harness on. I tell you, my ribs were so sore, I couldn't sleep the first night. I couldn't move, I couldn't breathe. Uh, you remember I was flying around, holding on to his mane with my feet away up in the air, and I'm flying after him, uh, holding on to his tail. And that's where we discovered Zazu Pitts discovered her in Pleasanton, you know, and she, she was, that was her first picture. Oh, yes. Well, then she made a little princess. Well, that was the one that followed, yes. and, and she played uh, my friend in that. That's a very touching performance that she gave. Now, let me see. Uh, when you made a film called Melissa, I had the impression from the still that you must have gone on location for that, didn't you? I was just talking about that day before yesterday. Yes. I went up to Idlewild to make that picture, and Tommy Meehan was playing with me, you know, and, and uh, what was his, Robert? Um, um, Theodore Roberts. Theodore Roberts. I played my father, and uh, it was a lovely performance he gave. Do you remember when he cried and I cut the hen's tail off to put in my hat? <laughs> Her name was Henrietta. <laughs> and remember, she laid an egg a day that gave him a bottle of whiskey, because, of course, it was the gold rush time, and, and an e eggs were very scarce, and uh, he could uh, trade an egg for a bottle of whiskey. And uh, he felt that I had irreparably uh, ruined his income by cutting off the tail, which wasn't the truth, because it, of course, was very sharp scissors and didn't hurt the hen at all. And I said to him, he was crying, and I said, uh, fashions is fashions beside the bir bird's bone. <laughs> and he made a, pa a pair of pants for the, for the head, if you'll recall, and sewed it on the, on the head. And uh, Tommy Meehan said to me, uh, oh, I just read a wonderful book last night, Mary. And I said, what's the name of it? He said, uh, Limehouse Nights by Thomas Burke. And I said, I'd love to read it. So he gave it to me, 
And then a year later, maybe been more than a year, I was doing Daddy Longlegs, and Mr. Griffith, D.W. Griffith, was at the old Triangle Studio where, where I was working, and he had joined United Artists, or had he? No, I don't think he had at that time. I think he made made this picture before, and would be able. Yes, that's right. So he said, "Do you have any ideas?" Well, I said, "I wrote read a great story, but it would take a lot of courage to do it." He said, "What is it?" I said, "It's in a series of, uh, of stories, Limehouse Nights." and it's called The Chink and the Girl. He said, uh, I'll get it tomorrow. It turned out to be Broken Blossoms. Well, I'd never heard that before. I'm glad that you recorded that mm -hmm. for Now, let's see. I think you mentioned Daddy Longlegs. I wish you'd tell us a little more about that. Well, I had decided that I wanted complete control of my pictures. And I had done very, three very bad pictures with a very charming individual that met with a very cruel death. That was uh, William Desmond Taylor. The pictures were called uh, Captain Kidd Jr., uh, How Could You, Jean, and uh, Am uh, Johanna and Liss. I said about How Could You, Jean, it should have been called How Could You, Mary. <laughs> and I was I, I was really slipping and uh, I was being very obedient to Mr. Lasky and Mr. Zucker and then I started becoming restless and I said to mother we've got to get some good material as you know Shakespeare said and I, I think there's nothing truer in the world that the play is the thing uh, no great actor could make a poor play, but a, a great play might make a good actor. So Mother went back to New York, and she bought Pollyanna and Daddy Longlegs. Well, I went to Mr. Zucker, and uh, my contract was up, and uh, I said I wanted to do those two pictures. I wanted to come back to gain the lost ground. And he didn't want to give me complete control. And in the meantime, First National had been making me offers and were willing to put up money in advance. And uh, Mr. Zucker, I'm not saying anything out of school because Mr. Zucker has told me this himself without mentioning the member of his family who was a charming individual, said to Mr. Zucker, let her go. Let her go to First National. You, that way you will accomplish two things. You will cure her swell, swelled head, and she'll ruin First National. And she'll come back to you and behave herself. Well, you know, I was a young girl, and maybe they thought I was too uh, headstrong. And he said, uh, well, honey, he said, uh, we'll go along being partners, but he said, uh, we have to have supervision. Well, I had never gainsay them. I mean, even those three bad pictures prove that. So I said, all right, Mr. Zucker. No, I, that was in the morning. He said, um, I'll think it over. Come back after lunch. I went back, and he said, well, honey, I can't meet these terms. I said, I'm sorry. He said, I'm sorry, too. 
I said, well, you know where I'm going. He said, I can imagine. So I went up to, it was J.D. Williams was his name. I think there was a man called Schwalbe too, wasn't it? And Mother, of course, was there. Mother always talked terms. All I did was to say, I'm willing to join your company, and here's my hand. I went back to the Knickerbocker Hotel and called Mr. Zucker at the office, and I said, I've done it. And there was a long silence. And then he said, well, God bless you, sweetheart, honey. And I started to cry, and he started to cry. He said, I can't, I can't talk anymore. I said, I can't either. That was the end. And he had almost, I think, a superstition about me. Because he said to me down at the Alexandria Hotel, he said, if you ever leave me, I'm finished with the star system. I'm going out after theaters. And that's what he did. But, you know, I wasn't that good that I should change his viewpoint, but I had been with him, and he looked upon me, well, like a daughter. And we had happy times and sad times together. And, uh, but he didn't give up the star system exactly, but he certainly built a tremendous empire in, in Paramount, and it still is. Then for First National, you made three films, Daddy Long Legs, The Hoodlum, and Heart of the Hill. That's right. Well, you see, Artcraft, I don't know whether I recorded this before, and how Artcraft was formed. See, in 1915, I had my own company. I owned 50% of it. Mr. Zucker, unlike the contracts that are today, the stars get their money whether the producer goes broke or not. And I don't approve of that. I don't think that's right. I think that their partners, they ought to take a chance along with them. Uh, Mr. Zucker got uh, uh, dollar for dollar with me. And uh, when that money, uh, of course, mine was advanced in the way of a drawing account against my 50%. And then it stopped, and Mr. Griff, Mr. Zucker, got a like sum, and then we split 50-50 after that. But I was dissatisfied because I felt my pictures were not getting the commenced returns that they should. And I remember the day as though it were yesterday. I was going home from the 26th Street studio. And I lived up at 91st Street and Broadway. And I passed the Strand Theater. Uh, I saw a double line at the box office for one of my pictures. I don't really recall which one it was at the moment. This is all good luck, and I don't hope you don't think I'm boasting. No. Please don't, because so many things uh, are responsible for a great career. Luck, being there at the right time, being helped by the right people. It's... Uh, I don't think any, any one individual has the right to take the credit uh, of so great a career as was mine. And I'm very sincere about that. The following week, I went by again, the same time, same day, and there was no one at the box office. So 
so I went almost, I think, up to 72nd Street or even further, and I thought, now that's funny. I have, I'm going back. So I went back and bought my ticket, went in. You could have shot a, cam, a cannon off on the main floor. I thought, well, maybe they're up in the balcony. I went up there, there was nobody in the balcony. So I went back, and I was hungry and tired, and I went home, and I said, Mother, that's strange. I said, why? Well, she said, I guess the public just does, they don't care for that type of picture, that's all. So the next morning, I went into Mr. Zucker's office, and I said, Mr. Zucker, would you mind telling me uh, how much money you got for my picture last week? He said, why? Well, I said, I'm your partner. I'd like to know. He said, I don't think you ought to bother your curly head with that. Well, I said, I've got to learn business sometime, Mr. Zucker. May I see? He took out the book. He said, $3,000. And I said, while the book's open, what are you getting for the picture this week? He gave me a funny look. He said, 2800 Why? I said, nothing. So that night, I said to Mother, the next time around, the next contract around, that's going to stop. So the next January, I said, Mr. Zucker, I want my pictures sold separately. He said, you're going out on a limb by yourself. I said, that's exactly where I want to be. He said, well, supposing that you get some bad pictures, I said, you can tear up my contract any day. If I'm not making money for you, I don't want to stay. And if I am making it, I want a reasonable share of it. I don't want all of it, but I want a reasonable share and I want a chance. I don't want to fly on someone else's kite and I'm not going to have them on mine. So Artcraft was formed and the contract read that any, any, any of the stars or producers that uh, were distributed through Artcraft would have to be approved by my mother, my lawyer and myself. And uh, with the result that DeMille, Hart, and Douglas Fairbanks came, their pictures were handled, were distributed by Artcraft. But then, at the end of the second year, when I saw that pictures like Rebecca Sunnybrook Farm and poor pictures like um, Romance of the Redwoods were only getting a world gross of $20,000 difference, I said there's something wrong somewhere. So then is when I demanded the things I did, and I was refused, and this is amusing. Al Kaufman, who was, poor dying, passed on recently. He was Adolf Zucker's brother-in-law, and we were very close, very friendly. He was studio manager, and I could tell him anything, and he'd, tell, he'd confide in me. They said, well, Daddy Longlegs, that'll be the, the really the, the worst picture of the year when she's out there all by herself, we'll, we'll all go down to see it. Of course, Al was delighted. I'm sure Mr. Zucker was, too. But the relative, and who advised him to let me go, uh, Al Kaufman said he just looked green that night because that was, I think, the tops up to that time of any picture I'd ever made, far superior to the next two. But before Daddy Longlegs was finished, someone, and I think it was Louis B. Mayer said, they were going to form a, a corporate, uh, an organization 
all of the big companies, it was then Metro, uh, First National, Paramount, and other big companies, where they controlled the producers. There were no producers in those days. There were just stars and directors and writers. And they'd tell us where to, to, to quote them verbatim where we were going to head in. And if we didn't like it, we, we could lump it. So uh, Douglas came to me. I, I had just had a very severe case of influenza. It was the time, you know, of the great epidemic. And uh, I, I said, well, why don't we do what I tried to do with Oddcraft and failed? Why don't we get our own company? So he talked to Chaplin, he talked to Griffith, and Hart was originally in there, you know? Yeah. But he wanted a guarantee, and the other, the four of us couldn't see guaranteeing him or anybody else. So we're out on our own, willing to do our own part in the way of putting up the money for the distributing company and also financing ourselves. And that was a big leap because uh, uh, First National had advanced me $250,000. And in the case of um, uh, Daddy Longlegs, $270,000 because I'd paid so much. I still own Pollyanna, you see. Yeah. And uh, so when we said we, we didn't feel that we should guarantee each other, we'd all stand on our own, hard backed out. But this was, uh, in, uh, this was early in, in January, I think. We all decided, we signed papers between uh, each other on the 19th of January, 1919. And uh, I don't think the papers were finalized until April. And then uh, Douglas Fairbanks said, in order to have a, an obligation, a common obligation, number one, and number two, to impress the industry that we mean what we say and that we're, we intend to go ahead, we ought to get a very big name. So we discussed several prominent individuals and we finally decided on William G. McAdoo, who had married, as you may recall, uh, uh, President Wilson's daughter. And he was, had just resigned. I don't know, he was, he was Secretary of the Treasury, I think. Yeah. So he, he, we gave him a fifth of the company of the stock. And I think his salary is 75000 a year. And uh, a man by the name of Guy Price, who really did all of the work, and we finally bought Mr. McAdoo out at the end of the year. And so we were in business. Then uh, United Artists was off with a bang with Pollyanna, wasn't it? No, I think Douglas was the first. I think His Majesty the American, oh. wasn't that the first? Right. And then That's I had right. to finish my uh, first national contract. I had yet to make the other two pictures. The hoodlum and the heart of the uh, Yes, and I started in September to make Pollyanna. And I think it was 19, January 1920, and then there was another flurry of influenza on the very day that Pollyanna opened. And of course, appealing to children, it was a great blow. Because yeah. they, you know, the theaters, a lot of the theaters were closed. And then parents wouldn't let them go out in, in a crowd. Uh, Chaplin didn't come in for some time, and Griffith's first picture, I believe, was Broken Blossoms. Yeah, and he had to buy it, I think, from First National, because he had made it um, 
I'm sure that was it. And then Charlie, to our great disappointment, didn't make a picture for us. Of course, he was tied up with First National, too. But instead of making a picture with him, himself co-starring, he made one uh, with Edna Purviens and uh, Adolf Monju, with The Woman of Paris. And, uh, Which with the Rosita is one of the two most famous lost films. Well, I promised you. <laughs> and I may be bad at other things, but not uh, breaking my promise. I promised you that. And I promised you all the stills that I have and all the photographs if you wish to have them sent back to Eastman House and have them copied and together with that picture of the great D.W. And we are to have a friend of Rosita, Oh, yes, you are. But maybe you won't want it when you see it. I uh, Quite to the contrary. You, you know, that picture. Don't worry. And, uh, and also, what is the other one I dislike myself in so terribly? Uh, well, you know... Secret? No. Uh, no, no, what was the other one? Oh, the, 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 never did I like a picture in its entirety, you know. I, I just cringe at some of the things I've done. Uh, and I look upon it as quite impersonally, like that girl, you know, or that woman. Mm. Well, now she's pretty good. That woman is ruining my reputation. <laughs> <laughs> and disturbing my, my years that I should be, <laughs> that I should be having a little peace and quiet. She comes romping out on the screen and, and disturbing me. Yeah. I think one of the most beautiful films you ever made was The Love Light. I was particularly impressed with the exterior scenes in that. Would you tell us a little about making that? Well, we went up to uh, Monterey, you know, mm -hmm. the peninsula there, around that wonderful uh, golf course, Cypress Point. Can we stop this now? Yeah. You know, in looking back over this recording, it may sound rather harsh, my dealings with Mr. Zucker and maybe other business associates, but it must be borne in mind that an actor's life, at best, is, a, is very short-lived. One of many things can happen to him, loss of health, but the greatest me uh, me uh, menace, of course, is the loss of popularity. And so he must make hay while the sun shines. And in wanting my pictures to be sold to the exhibitors individually was uh, fair and right. I did not want to be sold along with uh, eight or ten ordinary pictures that the exhibitors might not want. In fact, very often, flatly refused. I don't say that uh, Paramount or any company that I was associated with deliberately undersold me, but it's impossible in a worldwide organization to control the salesman, and you can understand, to the salesman's point of view. He is given a quota on each picture, and if he walks into an exhibitor and says, I have ten pictures here that I want to sell you, and the exhibitor said, no, I don't want the ten, I only want the two top ones, 
Well, naturally, the salesman cannot go back to his superior and say, I only sold the two successful ones. With a lift of the eyebrow, with a little gesture, he might say the following, well, I, I know you're my friend and I'm yours. You've got to help me out in this thing. I cannot go back and say I've failed. But you take care of these eight pictures and I will be reasonable with the two that you want. That in a nutshell is what I try to avoid and only partially even with my own company was I able to do so. It goes on today and of course is tremendous loss to anyone that is fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to have a great success and it, it uh, requires tremendous vigilance on the part of a producer to see that his product is safeguarded against this menace. And it's interesting to note, after all these years, that the industry now is emulating uh, the original idea of art craft. Pictures sold individually, the actors, actresses, great producers forming their own companies and seeing to it that the pictures are fairly and properly uh, sold, exhibited. I have never been of the opinion, nor am I now, that uh, any one individual should, uh, well, attempt to take all of the profits. I think everybody should have a share. I, I, I think that we all need an incentive and then with taxes such as they are today, uh, the tax, um, well, the capital gain tax is the only hope of putting money away for our children, for our future and our old age. And I'm well aware of that fact. And it makes me, uh, I won't say laugh exactly, because it was no laughing matter. Since this was not for public consumption and is for history, for the Eastman House, I may seem a little bit indelicate when I say that I received a million dollars, million forty thousand dollars for two years' work. And of course, that was when a dollar was a dollar, not 25 cents as it is today. Uh, they say, oh, Mary, you made your big money before taxation. I had one year in 1916, but in 1917, I paid the government out of the million, or the, rather the $520,000, I paid $250,000 tax. Then I had earned forty thousand dollars in nineteen sixteen and mr zucker asked me to accommodate him by putting it over into nineteen seventeen which of course i agreed well the government said although i'd earned it in sixteen i had to pay the tax in nineteen seventeen and the result was that of that 40000 I paid $27,000 tax, which left me thirteen.
and uh, I hope that uh, anyone who's interested in my career, which was, of course, amazing, but not nearly as amazing as uh, the people of today. For example, for that million forty thousand dollars, I made thirteen pictures. A certain star today, very handsome, a male star, is demanding seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for one picture. And when I got the ten thousand dollars a week, Mr. Zucker shared dollar for dollar with me. In other words, my ten thousand dollars a week was a drawing account against my fifty percent of the profits. When uh, the profits, uh, when that was realized, then Mr. Zucker got his five hundred and twenty thousand dollars. And then we split equally. But of course, Mr. Zucker, unlike myself, had other pictures in the company, other interests, whereas I only had one. So that also must be taken into account. Uh, I am proud of the fact that I paved the way for my fellow artists, but I regret that they are not more generous with the people that are putting up the money and running the tremendous risk. Because today, when you're putting in millions of dollars and you don't know whether you're going to get it back or not, I think that anybody who is going along with the producer should bear a little of the risk. Mr. DeMille told me the other day, I sat next to him at a luncheon at the Beverly Hills Hotel. He told me that the picture cost the great Ten Commandments, the last one he made, $13,500,000. But he said if it were made in the United States, it would have cost 50. But it's expected to do one hundred million dollars in gross. And you know what that darling has done. He's given it all to charity. He's not touching one penny of it. The company gets back his thirteen million five hundred thousand. And if I recall correctly, forty uh, percent is given to Mr. DeMille's foundation. Now there's a great man in his late 70s. And when they talk about us here in Hollywood, they omit uh, such, such wonderful people like DeMille. He's one of the finest metaphysicians I've ever met. He knows the Bible from cover to cover. And I doubt that, the, that he is just as, con that he's, that I'm sure that he's just as conversant with all of the great philosophical and metaphysical uh, books and works as he is of the Bible. He's a great credit to us. And it, uh, I knew him, of course, when I was a little girl. And uh, with each year, he's grown in stature. And I'm very proud that uh, I may call him a friend. He wrote me, or for me, 
uh, a tribute in my book, the uh, why, why, not, not Why Not Try God, that was another book, no, Sun, Sunshine and Shadow. And to know that uh, the great Cecil B. DeMille thinks so kindly of me is really heartwarming and, and something to be very, very proud of. Thank you for this very stirring summing up, this picture. After this, I almost hesitate to bring you back to 1921. But would you tell us about an instance involving uh, Gertrude Astor during the making of Through the Back Door? Oh, yes, I remember how beautiful she was, and I'm no doubt still is beautiful. I haven't seen her in many years. But it was always uh, my custom to remain off the set when other actresses, especially in their first scenes, were performing. Uh, because I was not a lone actress, but you see, I was producer as well. And anybody my size, at that time weighing 98 pounds, I, I don't know why I, I should frighten them, but uh, seemingly I did. So the director called me. This picture was, uh, was titled uh, Through the Back Door. And I'm sorry to say I wrote it myself. Yes, but I never took credit for any of the things I wrote because uh, it was enough that I was producing and acting in them. And I used my grandmother's name, Catherine Hennessy, most of the time. Of course, I had help, you know, uh, in, in the scenario. And, but the idea w was mine originally. And I worked also with the writers. But to go back to Miss Astor, the director called me in the dressing room and he said, Miss Pickford, we're in great trouble. He said, Miss Astor's been on this one scene, a close-up, at the telephone since 9 o'clock and it's nearly 12. And I don't know what to do with her. Frankly, I don't know. Will you come over? So I walked on the stage and the look she gave me, if I had been a lion, I'm sure it would not have terrified her more, uh, and why, I don't know, because I, I had certainly been polite and kind as I knew how. So I conferred with the director, and I said, now I want you to, uh, to, uh, tell, to alert the cameraman and the electricians, because I'm sure you're going to get your scene. So I walked over to her and put my arm around her shoulder, and I said, I know exactly how you feel. She said, I just can't cry, Miss Pickford, I cannot cry. Well, I said, I've been in that same position, and I know just how you feel. Uh, and uh, I knew she wanted me to help her in some way, and I thought, well, self-pity probably is the best approach. So I said, of course, we'll have to do the scenes over that you have already uh, photographed. Uh, but I said, that's all right. That happens, you know. But I said, I, I, I just feel terribly to have to take you out of this role. I said that we'll do everything we can to protect you uh, through the press in every way. But I said, you know, and, th and it was the truth also. It was the truth because there were enough people on the set that would have spread the story all over the place because in those days and today, it's a small village, you know, and you know what's the industry uh, 
as a family knows what's going on. When I told her that we'd have to replace her, she started to cry. And she wept, and of course the camera started grinding, and the director was pleased, and she was pleased. And I was too, and she came over and gave me a very tearful, very wet <laughs> embrace, a kiss, and said, thank you for helping me. I couldn't have done it without you. Did the uh, a dual role in Little Lord Fauntleroy give you a great deal of trouble working with the double exposures and so forth? Yes, because you see, it wasn't worked out as it, uh, it is today, all the mechanical uh, improvements. For instance, where Cedric, little Lord Fauntleroy, kisses his mother dearest, I think it took something like uh, three or four seconds on the screen. It took me 24 hours to, to accomplish that seeming miracle of kissing my own cheek. Well, now you ask me the impossible. <laughs> I promised you, and I will keep that promise, that you may have a copy of it. That is, if I have it, I, I may have it. I'm sure I do. And I trust that's in good condition. Well, I was approaching that time where I could not, at least I felt so, continue in the role of a little girl. This was back in 1922. I had already done um, the second test of the storm country, and I wanted to do a grown-up role. I wanted to do an, uh, an adult woman. I had seen some of the work of Ernst Lubitsch, I think the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Didn't he direct that? No, but he directed the poem uh, Madame du Barry. Well, Madame du, du Barry, but there was another one he did, too. Uh, but we were getting some very fine pictures from Germany. So I uh, negotiated with him and succeeded in having a contract signed. And uh, I sent him, before signing the contract, the story of Dorothy Byrne of Haddon Hall. And he agreed to do it. Uh, in the meantime, when he was on the high seas, I went to... Uh, the stadium here, the Veterans Stadium, without mentioning the general's name, there was quite a big gathering. And this man got up. He was the head of the Legion of Honor. And he made one of the most intolerable, in, intolerant and, and intolerable speeches I had ever heard. He said that they were bringing a German singer to this country. Now, mind you, this was four years after the war. He said uh, they are bringing this German opera singer to this country. He said, why? We have plenty of, of Americans who sing just as well and better. And he said, I would, and I'm quoting him verbatim, to God that you men out there who have fought in world, in, the, in world War would meet the Kaiser's son because it's said that he's coming here too and uh, to shoot him dead. 
Well, my blood ran cold. I thought, he's going to turn on me and say to me, to the audience, there sits a traitor. Why is she bringing Ernst Lubitsch here? Are there not enough American directors? Are there not enough directors of our allies that she must bring an enemy here? Then I began to get really hot under the collar. And I thought, well, if he does point to me, I'm going to say, well, General, sir, the war is over. And since when has art a boundary line? This is a great man. This is a great director and will be something for the industry, not alone the United States, but the world uh, to be proud of. Certainly I'm bringing him here. And I'm really shocked that four years after the war that I should have to sit here and listen to such intolerance and to such bigotry and such ignorance. Unfortunately, I was not called upon. I had to eat my speech and leave the platform without ever having to defend the people that wanted to reach hands across the ocean uh, and to bring together a, a beautiful result. Uh, and I had then still do great respect and admiration for Ernst Lubitsch. She was not a soldier, and even if had he been, and if I had been, we couldn't help the war. We had to do what our countries told us to do. But with the I went away from there, so shaken and so nervous that I sat down and disgusted with my mother, which I always did, because she was a very wise woman. And she said, well, I think probably it's best for everyone concerned that there be no fanfare for Ernst Lubitsch's arrival. So his attorney happened to be Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin's attorney, uh, Nathan Burkhand. And he went out on the pilot ship, met Lubitsch, took him off the ship. <laughs> it might be funny unless it to me, it's almost tragic. I, I, I want to cry when I think of it. Here's this German coming to the United States for the first time. And he had gold teeth in the front of his mouth. And he had on peg-top trousers. And he had lemon, banana, yellow boots, shoes. So the first thing... Mr. Burkhan said to him, he said, you've got to get rid of those shoes. He said, why? I bought them in Berlin, very expensive. He said, I know, but we don't wear them in the United States. And he said, those trousers, the peg top, he says, the finest tailor in Berlin. He said, I'm sorry, Ernst. He said, no. And he said, I'm going to get my dentist. He said, to take out those gold teeth and replace them with porcelain teeth. He said, now you're going too far. And of course, he spoke with a very broad German accent. But anyhow, all three things were accomplished. And poor Ernst Lubitsch arrived in Hollywood not knowing what kind of a demon I was.